Our text for this morning is going to be Haggai chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 10 through the end of the chapter. Haggai 2, 10 through 23. This is the word of Almighty God. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, thus says the Lord of hosts. Ask the priests about the law. If someone, carries, um, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or any other kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. How did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now pray with me, friends. Lord, would you add your blessing, your spirit, your power to our study of your holy word? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Have you ever lived in a world where things were both good and miserable at the same time? Yeah. Try to imagine it if it's hard for you. On the one hand, I want you to imagine that you live in a land where things are just better than you could have ever expected. You have many of the things that you've always wanted. At the same time, things are just not right. Something is missing. You're not achieving the success that you want. Everything should be wonderful, but it's not all adding up to wonderful. Can you guys imagine that world? Is it hard? The people of Judah, the Israelite descendants of King David, knew what this felt like. 
In the year 538 BC, God miraculously brought the Jews out of their exile in Babylon after the Medes and the Persians took over. There was a Jewish man named Zerubbabel who led the people home, and man, it looked like everything was going to go well. But then as time went by, the people lost their focus. Instead of rebuilding the temple of God, which they started in 536, instead of restoring the worship of God as the number one priority of the nation, the people focused on building their houses. They focused on making themselves comfortable. And though they built a lot, and though they worked hard over the 18 years or so of being back in the land, over the 16 years of rebuilding, the people never felt like they got what they wanted. Enter Haggai. On, I love that you can date this, by the way. This book gives you exact dates. On August 29th of the year 520 B.C., Haggai came to the leadership of the Jews with a message from God. God showed the people, it is inappropriate for you guys to live in nice, comfy, paneled houses while the house of God, the temple, was in ruins. God showed them, it is not okay for you to focus, for, for you to focus first on, on your career and on your comfort before you focus on God. The first commandment God gave was that the Jews were to have no other gods before him. And y'all, that includes that your home and your money and your family and your hobbies and your comforts and your social standing, none of those can be more important to you than your God. You cannot be a true follower of God when your top priority is financial gain, athletic success, this worldly comfort. Well, gloriously, the word of God spoken through Haggai, it made a difference. The people listened. The people were convicted of their sin. The people repented. They got to work. And by September 21st, shovels and hammers were again moving at the temple site. After years of immobility, the work, it got started in a matter of weeks. Parents, have you ever been surprised when you told your kids to do something and actually did it right away? This is like that. That's what we saw in Haggai chapter 1. Well, last week, Anthony, pray for him, by the way, he's at home sick. Anthony opened for us a second message from Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. And that message would have been delivered by Haggai on October 17th, 520 B.C., less than a month after the work started back up on the temple site. And God called the people to a little reality check. The temple that they were building was small. It was tiny. It seemed like nothing when you compared it to the old temple that Solomon had built. And so for the people of Judah, the good old days were gone. Again, think about that for a second. Have you ever, you know yourself or anybody else who ever longed that the good old days would return? It's you people that like to watch Mayberry. 
It's you people that, man, if we could just get back to the way the U.S. was in the 1950s, wouldn't we be great? Let me ask you real quick as a little side note. Would we be that great if we went back to 1950s America? No. Some things would be good. Some things would be better. But y'all, the good old days weren't that good. God told the people of Judah the good old days. They're not coming back. But God told the people of Judah, be strong. He said, work. He reminded them, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you in covenant love. And he promised that the latter glory of the temple would outshine the glory of the one Solomon had built. That was a little hint that the Messiah would walk in the new temple. And that's really cool. Today, Lord willing, we will wrap up the book of Haggai because on one day, God is going to send two messages to the people and in those messages, we're going to find words that speak to our lives today just as much as they spoke to the lives of people in 520 B.C. If you are a note taker, and I know some of you are, prepare to find five points. Five points. And let's hear a call from God to repentance and hope. A call from God to repentance and hope. Point number one, y'all ready? Never trust in your own goodness. Never trust in your own goodness. Look at 10 to 14. This is so good. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in a fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any other kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with these people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offered there is unclean. So, it is December 18th, 520 B.C. It's two months after the last message from God through Haggai. And here God wants the prophet to pose a little question for the priests, for the religious leadership of the nation. And the question might sound odd to you and me, but it made perfect sense to them. In the Jewish religious system, and I guess you know this, certain things were considered ceremonially clean, not contaminating the worship of God. Other things were considered unclean. So the question is, say a priest has a piece of ceremonially clean meat that he's carrying, it's all wrapped up. It's meat from a clean animal. The priest could eat this meat and the priest will not be made unclean. So it's not a pork chop. And say that that priest accidentally touches something unclean with the wrappings of the meat. The question is, would the unclean thing become holy because it was in near contact with the clean? And the priests answer right away, no, holy meat does not make clean something that was unclean. What's the point, you might say? Because none of us have that dietary system in place. 
Holiness does not spread easily. Holiness does not spread accidentally. Nothing becomes holy by casual contact with the clean. We're only halfway through an argument here, but I want to pause and say this to you. Growing in holiness ain't going to happen in your life by accident. You're not going to wake up one day and be like, oh my goodness, I, I grew in righteousness by doing nothing. God does call us to trust him and rest in him. God also says work with discipline towards your sanctification. Philippians 2.12 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Holiness doesn't grow by accident in your life. It doesn't spread accidentally in the church. You've got to work together in the power of the Spirit of God to become what God wants you to be. Never forget that. For the Jews, they needed to understand that they're not going to become a clean people before God just because they're living in the land where the temple used to be. They shouldn't expect that they should be thought of as holy because their their forefathers, their ancestors were good people. They're not going to be the holy people of God accidentally. And then you get the second question for the priest. If an unclean person touches clean food, does the food become become unclean? And the answer is yes, it absolutely does. And there's the alternate to the first question. Holiness doesn't spread easily, but uncleanness, sinfulness, corruption does. If you've got to work in your life to become more holy, if you've got to work and you've got to strive to grow in in sanctification, so too you must work to keep yourself from what will corrupt you. That could be your choices in entertainment, what you let come into your head through your eyes. It could be in how you let yourself think. It could be in your purity, whatever it is. It is easier for you to become corrupted than for you to grow. So you've got to guard against wickedness to the glory of Christ. Holiness doesn't spread easily. Sin does. Now I want to give you an illustration How many of you have ever gardened or worked with plants? A couple of you have. All right. How about you young people? Any of you children ever help anybody work with plants before? Okay, good. I want you all to work with me, okay? I want you to imagine that you're going to go work with the plants, and it's kind of muddy, and you choose to wear white gloves. Now, here's my question for the young folks. What is more likely that you will get glovey mud or muddy gloves. You're going to get muddy gloves, aren't you? You're right. Let me ask you kids, is it easier to get dirty or get clean? Is it easier? When you got nice clothes on, is it easier to keep them nice or do they tend to attract messes? You adults get the point yet? (laughs) Cleanness takes work. Think about it. 
the way you think, the way you live, the way you act, the way you spend your time, the way you let your mind go, cleanliness takes work. Sin is easy. For the Jews of Haggai's day, the point was very sharp. The people should not think that they're made clean just by re-entering the land. In point of fact, those people, they don't care enough about God to prioritize worship and they threaten to make the land unclean. They're not going to be made clean by the land. They're going to make the land unclean by their presence. Verse 14 says, So is it with these people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offered there is unclean. These folks have been bringing uncleanness with them into the land. They've offered empty acts of worship from hearts that do not put God first. Now, y'all, the news in this chapter is going to get better, but you get the bad news first. You put this all together. Here's what I'm telling you. This is what you need to see. Never trust in your own goodness. Sin spreads easy. Cleanness is hard to come by. We're not good enough on our own to please God. We can only please God if God gives us grace and gives us a righteousness, gives us a cleanness that we don't have naturally. Now, let's keep going. Point number two. Consider the consequences of sin. Consider the consequences of sin. Of sin, verses 15 to 17. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight, with mildew, and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. So much like the language we've been hearing in Haggai all along, God says, I want you to stop and think, people. I want you to take a little life inventory. God's going to show these people that not only have they been sinful as a people, but their sinfulness was costly. God asked the people, think about your lives before the changes that you all just made. It's the month of December. It was, it was only August when God first spent, sent word through Haggai telling the people they need to turn from their self-focus to God's focus to prioritize the worship of God to build the temple. Well, after God showed the people that they weren't going to be made clean by osmosis, right? You don't become a clean people just by living in the good land. He calls the people to see that life hasn't been good while living for self. When those people thought the grain was going to produce at a particular level, they get about half of what they thought they were going to have. The vineyards were producing at about 40% of what they should have produced. Then God said, hey, just in case you all don't know, I did that. I did that. This was my doing. God says, I cursed the crops. I made the produce fail. I sent storms. It's exactly what God said back in chapter 1. And though the people found that their lives had been difficult and their harvest had been unproductive, they didn't repent. The priests of the land for the past 20 years should have been saying, look guys, you've got to repent. You've got to finish the temple work. 16 years went by without them caring. 
Does it seem strange to you, by the way, that God let the crops fail and God let the people suffer financial strain because of their sin? Remember, the Jews are part of the nation of Israel, right? As a people, the nation of Israel agreed to God that they would follow God as a nation in accord with the laws he gave. And they agreed that if they failed to live up to God's laws, that God should judge them as a nation for disobedience. Slow crop production, financial futility, those were in keeping with the original contract that God made with Israel when he took them as his people after he led them out of Egypt. Now look, I'm not going to promise you that your sin is going to make you financially unproductive. Some sinners get rich. But I will promise you this, and listen to me here, sin costs. Choosing to do things in ways other than God's ways will hurt. Sin always promises you more than it delivers, and it always costs you more than you're willing to pay. Consider the consequences of sin. Truth is, sin costs you in this life, and it costs you in the next. Remember, God made us. God, God made this world. When we choose to sin, what do we choose? We choose to rebel against the Creator. God knows how life is supposed to work. God knows what will make people thrive. Sin is us choosing against what is best for something that can't last. God knows how families ought to work, doesn't He? God knows how gender is supposed to be understood, doesn't He? God knows how work is supposed to go. God knows how society is supposed to function. And anytime a society chooses to go against the ways of God, they go against design and they mess things up. Let me ask you, our nation is going more and more against God's design than we've ever seen it go before. Would you guys say that it's better than it's ever been? No. We've got confused teenagers and we've got messed up political systems and we've got broken families and we've got racism and we've got war and we've got abortion and all of these things result when people do things in ways that are not God's ways sin has terrible consequences and I'll tell you what worse than our nation falling to pieces sin has eternal consequences the Bible says the wages of sin is death Romans 6 23. When we sin against God, we earn the punishment of eternal death, hell forever. That's a consequence you can't survive. You got to realize that. You got to see your need. You got to look to the Lord for help. So definitely consider the consequences of sin and let that drive you to look for the grace of Almighty God. Point number Three, repent for life. Repent for life. This is the spot in John where the, mess, the point would be believe in Jesus, just so you know. We'll get back to John next week, Lord willing, okay? Verses 18 and 19. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider this, Is the seed yet in the barn? 
Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing but... Oh, look at this, friends. But is the best word in the Bible sometimes. But from this day on, I will bless you. So now God has a little challenge for the people. Pay a little attention. Pay close attention. Mark the date. Things have gone badly over the past 16 years. Crops have failed. Harvests have been less than half of what they're supposed to be. It's all going to change, God says. God says, mark the turning point, please. In August, God said, I want you all to repent. In September, the people got to work on the temple. In October, God said, press on, keep it up, don't be discouraged. Here in the month of December, God says, you're going to soon be able to look and see that as soon as you repented, as soon as you did things that God commanded in God's ways, the world changed. God says, is the seed yet in the barn? He's probably telling them, look, you notice you have no surplus. You don't have any margin. You have nothing left over. What little seed you had is in the ground right now. You've planted it. It's all gone. It feels very desperate, perhaps hopeless. But then God says, from this day on, I will bless you. God says, I'm going to bring blessing to a people who don't have hope. The crops are going to grow. This next harvest is going to be big. God's going to lift the hand of judgment off of the people. Why is God changing the fortune of the nation? The answer is repentance. In August, God confronted these people with their sin And in September, they turn from their sin to obey. They're not blessed because the good land just rubbed off on them and made them good too. They're not blessed because they earned it by being super people. God's going to bless them because when he warned them, they believed his warning and that belief brought about change. To repent means three things. It means that you change how you think, how you feel, and what you do. The people in the land who thought they were clean and holy because of their association with the land, they had to discover that they were actually sinful and in need of the grace of God. The people had to change how they felt, turning away from feeling great about themselves to feeling the sorrow of conviction. And they had to change what they did, turning from wrong to right. They had to stop neglecting the worship of God. They had to stop valuing personal comfort above God. And they started having to do the actual work of cleaning up and rebuilding at the temple site. Do you all hear the gospel in repentance? All people everywhere have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. You all agree with that? Do any of you feel like you've lived up to God's perfection? None of us can be good enough to work our way into the favor of God. We need our sin to be paid for. We need God to give us a cleanness that we would never have on our own. So repentance for us today begins with you confess your sin to God. 
today, if you want to repent, you say to God, God, I know I've sinned against you. I know I deserve judgment. And I entrust my soul to Jesus for my salvation. Jesus died to pay for our sins. Jesus will give us the cleanness as a gift that we could never achieve on our own. Jesus gives us the reward of heaven forever. But repentance is a part of the Christian life. Well, what do you think? Do you think you repent to be saved and that's it? How many of you have had to repent at least once since coming to faith? How many of you have had to repent at least once since coming to church today? I know some of you should have. As we live in Christ, God says, you are my saints, you are my holy ones, you are my chosen ones, you're my family, you're my children. You are forgiven. But we still fall short, don't we? Though God has changed us, though God has granted us the record of the perfection of Jesus Christ, we must strive to turn from sin and embrace the ways of God day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. Our lives are marked by the need for step-by-step progressive sanctification. And that means we repeatedly see in our lives that we fall short. We confess that to God. We feel sorrow that we've done it. We turn away from sin and we embrace the righteous and godly alternative. Repent for life. If you don't know Jesus yet, your repentance should start by believing you're a sinner, turning to Jesus in faith, and asking him for salvation, saying, I want you to be in charge from now on. But if you do know Jesus, look at your life, ask the Lord, where do I need to change so I can be more in keeping with your word? You need to put off sin, put on righteousness, and thank Jesus for grace. Fourth point. Let go of the things of the world. Let go of the things of the world. Point number four. Verses 20 to 22. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. So it's the same day. It's December and God sends a word of prophecy particularly to Zerubbabel, the governor, the, the guy that was led, leading everybody back, back in 538. He's still there in 520. Zerubbabel is a man whose family tree puts him in the kingly line of David. But Zerubbabel's not important like that. Nobody thinks Zerubbabel's the king. Before, earlier today, God spoke to the priests to deal with the religious situation among the Jews. Now God's got a word for the governor, the political leader. And what God promises here, y'all, is frightening. A day is coming. And this day is going to be a time when God shakes the heavens and the earth. You already know that's not comfortable, right? 
All through the Old Testament, we see promises of God shaking the heavens. Sometimes he said, I'm going to darken the sun. I'm going to turn the moon to blood red. I'm going to make the stars fall from the sky. And those are all cataclysmic predictions of God promising, I'm bringing the coming, what we call the day of the Lord. It's a day when God overturns the world system and God brings down governments and God changes the entire world. The language God uses here reminds us of a couple things that God's done to judge the world in the past. When he says, I'm going to overthrow kingdoms, that reminds us, it's the same Hebrew word for God, overthrowing Sodom and Gomorrah when he rained fire on those wicked cities from heaven, right? When it says, I'm going to defeat chariots and their riders, that should remind you of God destroying the Egyptian army as they tried to drive their chariots through the Red Sea. The idea of armies turning their swords against each other should remind you of God defeating the Midianites at the hands of Gideon. When God promises the coming day of the Lord, oftentimes in the Old Testament, he's promising the fall of political power and a change in the way the world works, the way the world runs. At the same time, the day that God promises always foreshadows the glorious final day of the Lord, the day when Jesus comes back to this earth. When Jesus comes back, God is going to overthrow all rule and all dominion. God will defeat every last enemy, and Jesus Christ will reign supreme as King of kings and Lord of lords forever. What we need to see in this is the promise that a change is coming in the future. God will not allow this world to continue as it stands. How do you feel about that? You good with that? The world will not remain in sinful rebellion against God forever. A day will come when those who hate God and who hate God's ways will be overcome by the mighty consuming glory of God. A time will come when what this world thinks is mighty is going to be shown as nothing in comparison to the glory and the power of Jesus. And when we see that promise, especially the promise of the dismantling of worldly powers, we need to be reminded to let go of the things of this world. This worldly comforts, being comfortable in the here and now, They were keeping the Jews from worshiping the Lord. People were loving their nicely paneled houses. People were loving their social status above the command of God to rebuild the temple. God wants us all to remember that even though things in your life seem solid and stable, nothing that's not about the Lord Nothing that's not about the glory of God will last. You understand that? Look at the things you value. Maybe it's something pretty. Maybe it's something fun. Ask yourself if in a thousand years it will matter. So dear friends, don't love this world. Don't love its trinkets. Don't love its sins. Let go of them when you need to. 
that you might give your all to the worship of the Lord. I'm not telling you never have fun. I'm not telling you never have a hobby. I'm telling you don't ever love this world more than Jesus. Point number five, last one. Cling to the kingdom of Christ. Cling to the kingdom of Christ. You still with me all the way through? All right. Look at verse 23. This is probably a verse many of you have memorized. It says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Y'all could have quoted that, right? No, it's a weird verse. So this is the ending. This is the whole end of the book. You ever watch one of those movies and when it gets over, you're like, what? This this is one of those until you understand it. This is glorious. Absolutely glorious. God says to Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you like a signet. Y'all know what a signet ring is? Royal official, king would have it. He could use it to press down in the wax to show that this is an official proclamation. It has his seal on it. God says that Zerubbabel is going to somehow be the representative of the royal plan of God. That's what's being said in that verse. And you still say, what? All of the Old Testament is about God making and bringing to pass his promise to rescue his people. When I talk to children, sometimes I will say, God in the Garden of Eden promises a rescuer to come. And all of the Old Testament is God promising and 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 promising to bring that rescuer into the world and doing everything that needed to happen to bring it to pass. God promised somebody was going to come into the world who would set right what went wrong in the garden. God promised that the one to come was going to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, and the one who would come would be a kingly descendant of David. But now, just before the Babylonians took over the city of Jerusalem, God spoke strong words of prophecy against the Davidic king who was on the throne. They call him Coniah or Jehoiakim. I want to read to you Jeremiah 22, verses 24 to 27. I want you to listen to what God says about Coniah, okay? And listen for the signet language. Jeremiah 22, 24 to 27. As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which you will long to return, there they shall not return. There's a prophecy. Again, another verse you probably didn't have memorized, right? Did you hear it, though? 
If Coniah, God says, if you were the signet ring on my hand, I would rip you off my hand and I would throw you into a foreign land until you and your mama there die. What was God saying? Some people who heard that before the Babylonian exile might have thought God was throwing away the Davidic kingdom. But if God threw away the Davidic kingdom, that means that God's putting an end to God's promise to bring a rescuing king from David's line. Would God let his promise of a rescuing king fall to the ground and die? Now listen to this last verse here in Haggai. God says to Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you like a signet. God is telling us something world-changing. God says the promise is not dead. Zerubbabel is a descendant of David. Zerubbabel is going to be a signet. Zerubbabel is going to carry the promise of God. The plan of God is not dead. Now, historically, Zerubbabel doesn't become a big, important king. But that wasn't what God promised. God's promise is about the line of promise. God's promise is about the coming of the Messiah. God's promise is about keeping the signet of power in the family of David until somebody comes who is the promised king who's going to come and rule the world forever. Do you know that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, we see the name of Zerubbabel mentioned in a very important list. Zerubbabel is part of the family line of Jesus. And Jesus is the promised king descended from Zerubbabel who fulfills every promise of God. See, to the Jew of Haggai's day, the promise to Zerubbabel, it's a promise that God's not going to let the covenant die. But for you and me, the promise is a reminder that everything we live for, it ought to be focused on the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus. Haggai, he rebuked the people, he reproved the people for focusing on themselves and their comfort above the worship of God. He pointed them toward the coming of King Jesus, the king that we've got to bow to, the king we've got to serve. And here's the question, will you surrender your life to the lordship of that king, that King Jesus today? Will you follow Jesus in faith as your Lord today? Entrust your soul to Jesus to be your only hope of salvation today? If you will, if you have, then the call of this book, because God keeps all his promises, is that you should follow Jesus with everything you've got, making Jesus your holy, highest priority. Let's pray together, friends. Lord, your word is so good. And we're grateful for your promises that you fulfill them all. Lord, even as we sing, give us glimpses of your glory. Let us magnify our Savior, for none can compare with him. No one can do what you've done. And help us, God, I pray, to yield everything we have to you Help us to prioritize you above all. Help us 
us not to let the junk of this world, even, even good things, get in the way. But be our King and our Lord. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.